Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Grace, and thanks for tuning in. With us today, we've got Jera. Paint it so. Ain't it so. Paint it so. And with us for our special guest, we have Amanda. Hello. Yeah. And before we get to our main topic, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media, up to handcrafted, hand-painted watch-along commentaries. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash women at warp. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I would say we don't have any upcoming con appearances immediately right now. No, uh, um, no. just, you know, if virtual things come across our, our desk and uh, let us know if you have a virtual thing coming up, because we're a little bit bored. And you know what? Don't even let us know if it's Star Trek related. Just check in with us so we know you're okay. So with us this week, we've got our special guest, Amanda Wong. Amanda, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little about yourself? Thanks, Grace. Um, well, I work as an artist in animation. Uh, currently, I live in Vancouver, and I've worked on some, some of my projects. I've worked on are uh, the My Little Pony movie, Rick and Morty season four, the first version of DC Superhero Girls, and most recently, Netflix's Carmen San Diego. We are in rarefied cartoon company, and I love it. Also, I am a huge fan of Star Trek. Hell yeah. And I've been watching it since I, I was seven. Aw. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your um, personal experience with Star Trek? Um, well, I first stumbled upon it, as I told you, when I was seven by just watching uh, the Next Generation reruns. And then since then, I caught on uh, DS9, Voyager, and some of Enterprise in real time. And I would say that... I personally consider DS9 the strongest series, but my favorite would probably have to be TNG. Excellent. You have refined tastes, as we can see. (laughs) So our main topic today, if you hadn't sussed it out already, is art and artists in Trek. The art that we see and how the artistic temperament and lifestyle is examined for all its artiness in Trek. So let's talk about art in Star Trek. One of the first things... I think you can uh we need to touch on is how how do we see art and artists as characters in media at large and how that's represented in Star Trek. Literally the first thought when I just have like media stereotype of an artist is I think about like a sort of like bohemian hippie type yes. who is also insane and probably a guy. Um but women love him because he's a creative type. <laughs> yeah like i'm thinking like van gogh and dr Hill. yeah oh right <laughs> um and like maybe a bit of a mess um but also like that they have this innate genius yeah my favorite like i said i really love always looking into the different sort of media creation of they have the artistic temperament they're not like you and me and i love that that comes through even into the distant future kind of in our perception of the arts and the artistes. We always see them as being this kind of different breed of person and personality. And that, that's all, that always strikes me as funny because, you know, they're, they're people too. They're just creative people. Yeah. And I think that one thing that we don't see a lot in media of any kind and Star Trek included is like the work yeah, and the, the discipline. Um, it's just kind of seen to be, this like thing that just kind of springs forth you pull a fully a fully painted painting out of your head yeah and like no one has to learn anything to do it (laughs) yeah and you very rarely see collaborative art um especially because uh, i come from a medium that is very team based and i would say mainstream perception of art usually stems from an idea coming from one great person. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. most people will, most people will credit um, all the genius of Rick and Morty to maybe one man, like Dan Harmon, yeah. uh, or My Little Pony to Lauren Faust. But 
it is very collaborative and you very rarely see that kind of art portrayed in media possibly because the logistics of it makes it difficult especially if you want to give shorthand within one episode um so then you say this great work was created by this Bajoran poet yeah. you don't really see the process behind it or this play was created by this great man and you don't see the you know all the editing and collaboration behind it kind of like all or of like star trek roddenberry's yeah that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> it wasn't a collaboration it was just one artistic endeavor that came out of a single person um which i think is makes the whole topic of art in star trek extra ironic just in that idea of everything being credited to one person rather than as a collaborative effort yeah and star trek really um i think unwittingly reproduces sexism that we have in this idea of like what a stereotypical great artist is um they reference a lot of real life artists throughout the series but it's pretty much all european guys or else aliens so they'll be like yeah this bajoran poet or this vulcan playwright or this cardassian architect but then it's like salvador dali monet michelangelo samuel beckett Um, Yeah, there's this wonderful tweet that was going around for a while, and I was trying to find it so I could reference it for this episode, and it was along the lines of talking about famous artists and great thinkers in Star Trek is always like, it'll be up there with the likes of Plato, Aristophanes, and Gleepglorp, the bug man. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I definitely remember uh, in the DS9 episode Muse, uh, the woman specifically says, like, alien name, alien name, Keats. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes, I just watched that um, one. Or in Star Trek Discovery, where they're like, you know, don't lose this opportunity to not be like Zephyrin Cochran, alien name, Elon Musk. I know. <laughs> oh, gosh. We're always going to have <laughs> to live with that being one of the examples in <laughs> contemporary Star Trek. You can always frame it at, well, this speech was given by a bad person. So yeah. It's okay. <laughs> Maybe it's going to be one of those horrible, the legacy is more important than the man things. Which we also see with a lot of artists. Totally. Um, But I think it's worth noting, you know, a couple reasons why that sexism kind of exists in art history and art criticism. And um, one of those is the fact that, like, women artists throughout history have faced real barriers. Um, Like, you know, go back to, like, Virginia Woolf's talking about a room of one's own, and that applies throughout other types of art. Um. And, you know, having to juggle different responsibilities, being denied the ability to earn your own income, um, as well as just, like, sexism and perception. Um, But there's also been, like, really um, a concerted um, attempt that is only more recently begun to be dismantled to, like, devalue women's like more traditionally uh women's forms of arts like textiles and folk art as like crafts yeah mm-hmm. um so there's all these like arbitrary distinctions based on like what women in have in history created versus what versus what men have created and uh those are just interesting things that i think like the creators of star trek were probably not aware of but by really only like they there were a lot of women and non-white artists that existed that they could have name dropped and like they basically never did Yeah, and i'm glad you brought that up because one of the things i was doing um as research for this episode is i was trying to look up pictures of different um like prop pieces of artwork throughout the different series to like reference and i realized there was this huge uh, disparity between like the prop paintings created to have been done by male characters versus by uh non-male characters like we've got oh. a huge chunk of like prop paintings that I've that we've seen and that float around on Christie's every now and then by data and I could only really find for um paint uh, paintings done by a woman character uh the ones done in an asylum of of Khan and Napoleon and just portraits of great men and that contrast really was weird, especially when I kept looking for stuff about uh, women artists in Star Trek, like characters, and I didn't see paintings so much as tchotchkes and like little bits of folk art. Yeah, um, come to think of it, the only the only female artist that I can think of who did paintings was actually Zial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think, like, that is shown in a pretty decent and neutral way. Like, um, you know, Marla MacGyver's painting all these, like, men megalomaniacs is much more problematic and it's kind of indicative of like the weakness of her character um and is just very weird when you know given that she's like the only one whereas i i think zial is more like a um you know she's a person she's going to school so she's learning things she's doing work she's growing i feel like we missed out not getting to see zial have the full art school experience through the lens of star trek (laughs) Cardassian Art School Confidential. Exactly, yes. Think of what we could have got. I always thought they missed a nice bonding scene uh, if they had a nice little scene between Zial and Major Kira where Major Kira tried to bond with Zial by trying to learn painting or something, especially because Kira did was supposed to come from um, an artist family Yeah. if the Bajorans had kept their caste system. Her mother was an icon painter and then she terribly tried yes. to follow in her yes. mother's footsteps in accession to mm-hmm. terrible, you know, to bleak results. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I especially liked about Zial's character is that she's given a moment in the episode Sons and Daughters um, to explain why she decided to become an artist. Um, and she was drawing from her experience as both Bidjorn and Cardassian. And she says to Dakot and Kira, that she wanted her art to try to bring people together. Yeah. It was also, like, a nice character moment to show how incredibly naive she was, but uh, I thought that was I thought that was really sweet of her. Yeah. Yeah. She's, um, she's very much an ideal, a sort of idealized version of what we want to believe art is there for. Like, it's for bringing us all together and for being yeah, nice. Yeah, for connection. Yeah. Art shouldn't, be di- art shouldn't be divisive. It be, yes. It should show, you know, what would things be in an ideal world? Yes. What would art be in an ideal world? Which is really hard to comprehend considering how much art is done freelance these days. And how that would work in a post-scarcity society. Yeah, well, that was one thing, like, me and Grace were talking about a little bit before we started, was this idea of, like, how you, whether or not you call yourself an artist in our world really has to do with whether you can make a living off of it, that a lot of people who have artistic hobbies wouldn't call themselves artists. So does that change if you're in a post-capitalist, post-capitalist society where, you, if you wanted to, you could pursue art your entire life and no one has to like it? Yeah. How far into the ho- into it do you have to be for it to be less a hobby and more a descriptor of you? Which is really funny considering just, um, and this was also a bizarre pattern uh, noticed in the series. There's a lot of portraits painted of people. <laughs> just that portraiture is still a huge thing because wherever there will be artists, apparently, there will be people who want their ego to be fed by artists and by having big old school portraits done of them. It's true. Ducat did complain that there was no statue of him in Bajor. <laughs> I also like, you know, that they have uh, like figure painting night on the <laughs> with like Data and Picard. <laughs> the, like that whole episode is terrible, but that one scene is pretty fun. <laughs> I was going to say, I like how that episode kind of establishes a name-dropping word salad in reference to art culture, just having it, it data com, uh, comparing people's artwork when we do have it happen on Star Trek really just kind of sounds like him barfing up an art in uh, illustrated dictionary. <laughs> and also that the male gaze is still very present in art. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was just about to bring up, uh, especially even in the Doctor's fantasies. Yeah. He's still doing figure drawing which is good but it's a seven of nine and she is getting drawn like one of his french girls <laughs> and it is ridiculous especially when you look at her going through and being like and he's done this more than once they're all just different blown up versions of the exact same drawing and i appreciate that i i have such a love for weird art props in tv um like I said, I was looking for um, examples of the props, mostly because I love when you have a, anything in a TV show where they're talking about a great work of art, and then you see the work of art, and it was really, for 
for all the effort put into it, very clearly painted by some by one someone who's a house painter or is there to paint the set. And oh, I love it. I love when people are hyping up a painting that looks like someone's cousin just did it. And another another reason we need to give Night Gallery as a show more credit is the paintings in it were very beautiful and very well done. Um, but prop paintings, they I love them so much. I will happily produce you a prop replica of Kira Sculptures in Accession. I would. That would mean the world to me. Honestly, I want. <laughs> I want to curate a gallery entirely of prop artwork reproductions. All right, new new quarantine task. New quarantine <laughs> task and new life goal. Um, how did you feel about Accession, Amanda, and this this idea of like um, artist castes and I guess like the message that that is a terrible idea (laughs) oh um i've never really thought about it to be honest that's okay i mean i guess like i'm wondering about so i am i would not call myself an artist although i I do i would i would be more like of the janeway school that like i like to sculpt heads in a holodeck to relax and that's Um, a totally valid form of being an artist (laughs) Yeah, um, but I guess I'm curious about the idea that, like, you're either talented or you're not. And, I mean, I I think, like, obviously I wouldn't suggest that, like, we create a society where we force people to do things they don't like to do. Um, And that, like, you know, if you're in this 24th century post-capitalist society... You have a lot of options at your disposal, and if you're, like, inclined to do something that's not art, that's totally cool, and you should, like, no one should be making you sculpt things. Um, But I also wonder whether there is this, like, like, is, are they, is she giving up too easily? Um, I mean, maybe she shouldn't have it as a career, but maybe she should try to get some assistance for a hobby side of things. I don't know. Yeah, you would definitely think that in the 24th century, they would have some equivalent to YouTube tutorials. Who is the deep space Bob Ross, and where Um, can we find his work? Yeah, exactly. Or the Joran sculpture. But I will say, in my experience, I find art to be extremely personal um, because I had a career before going into animation, which was market research. And I found that when I was a marketing professional, you could have bad days, which would lead to being less productive. But it was never so much a part of my identity as the way being an artist is. And if I don't feel, if my mental state isn't good and I don't feel the need for it, like, I don't feel the urge to do it. I cannot force myself to draw. Yeah. Um, and I cannot force myself to paint. And perhaps for someone like Hira, who is just approaching this new occupation of hers because her religion suddenly demands it, um, no, you know, no matter what instruction that she could possibly look into, it wouldn't help her to develop this to develop the skill the way you would for a normal hobby which mm-hmm. i mean i think there's something to be said about doing art as a hobby because it makes you happy mm-hmm. um and then because it makes you happy it makes you want to try and practice practice this skill and learn more about it and improve it but if it doesn't make you happy then you're not going to be inclined to put in the time to do it on the level of a professional mm-hmm. which was the which was the theme of that episode because she had to suddenly resign from her position as major to pursue an occupation as an artist because that was what her family did it really does make you wonder though if there was a point where there was like an artist and craftsman cast of society mm. on page or there would have probably been a good number of artwork you can't guarantee uh, that it would have all been good or that the people doing it would have actually genuinely enjoyed doing it because it was just kind of assigned to them arbitrarily 
And it does make you wonder. But you also would have been raised in a more supportive environment to like cultivate that. And then maybe another thing that's important to note is like Kira, like, you know, Ensign Rowe, who didn't color growing Mm -hmm. up and didn't jump on the bed. Like, they both grew up in a pretty crappy environment where that didn't have a lot of opportunity to or encouragement to like think creatively or to use your imagination other than like for very you know practical purposes it's true and, um and even seeing yeah. adults try um art or artistic hobbies sometimes it can be really uh emotionally demanding of them it can be a very stressful situation and that can be so much different when you're sort of from a young age told okay try this make mistakes, have fun, see what happens versus when you're an adult, you have this idea of, okay, I have to do it right. It can, um, it can really drain on people. And I've seen it happen when I was briefly teaching art classes. I feel like Kira should have been given like some examples of like rage filled political art. (laughs) That would have been amazing. (laughs) Like flinging red paint at walls kind of stuff. Yeah. Get, get Kira into that. wild expressive stuff that that i could see her really thriving in once she sort of got a little less inhibited about it i definitely do think there is a dearth of political art within star trek in oh general, hell yeah which i yeah. which i find very surprising because it is one of the very common functions of art um and off the top of my head the only times i can think of political art is probably um, in Cardassian literature when it's used to reinforce the norms of their society and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, like you hardly ever come across any kind of political or uh, counter culture art in, you know, for example, the human world. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's because they're all happy that their needs are being met, but, or, you know, outside of the Lords, because probably the writers didn't really think that far ahead when, you know, building this world. Well, also, if we're seeing things based mostly around Starfleet and the people involved in Starfleet, we're not seeing a lot of counterculture when we're seeing people who are happy with this primary culture. Like, when we see aliens dealing with artwork, it's often, um, and particularly this is notable in the original series, like, super wealthy yes. um, aliens who are, like, art collectors. Yes. Um, like, in Requiem for Methuselah, where dude also, spoilers, collects sex robots, which are also, he sees kind of as a form of art, and it's all very weird. Um, There's a whole but... episode we could do about that, but yes. <laughs> But yeah, he, I mean, uh, he collects all this art, um, including, you know, things like, I think he has like a Shakespeare um, book and stuff like that. Um, so he has uh, like pieces from Earth, uh, earth history that are... Earth history is the um, combination of art and yeah, earth. Art and earth. Earth history. Yeah. Um, and in the cloud minders, art is like very associated with the upper I'm class. I'm really glad and, you bring I mean, that up. Yes. Yes. Go, good. Did you have thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I do. Um, well, with uh, the Cloudminders, we get this perception of art being a privilege of the upper class, both having the abil- uh, the means, the education, and uh, the, the luxurious time to produce and appreciate art. And we see it very much as a thing of with the upper class when they say, well, hey, why don't we give the, the under lings uh rights to this it's very much a thing of oh well they wouldn't appreciate it they wouldn't understand it both with um their knowledge and their technology which is something that you really commonly see with discourse about fine art and education and accessibility um this is uh, at the risk of turning it into a personal story i've had uh, gotten into arguments with older relatives because they were like well the young people today, none of them have, like, a favorite opera. And it's like, where would they hear an opera? <laughs> Who, when would they be able to afford to go to an opera? Who's got the time, money for that? It, the people who do is a very specific group. And that's not the average person. So saying that the average person uh, is in some way deficient because they don't have an appreciation for higher artwork that they have no means of access to and are being constantly told they wouldn't appreciate. That's 
such a ridiculous you know, standard like, to set. It feels totally it's like classes. a Jane Austen thing where you have like the people being like, oh, she'll never marry well. <laughs> <laughs> They'll never understand the beauty of Wagner. How many, how many instruments does she play? <laughs> and then, <laughs> so I mean, yeah, like it comes from a real place in our in our society and culture. And it's interesting that like Star Trek does kind of pick up on that. They don't really, really interrogate. I mean, I think Cloudminders actually does a pretty good job. It doesn't like pull out art on its own as a piece, but it does a pretty good job interrogating classism. Um, so uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting that it picks up on that. But it, you know, we don't get to see the like you know, the the miners in the cloud minders, and they're like... They could have an awesome folk art scene, and we don't know about it. And yeah. They're, they're spray painting the outsides of the caves, and it's <laughs> awesome. And we've seen in human history this kind of consistent idea of outsider art isn't quite the same as art art, so we're missing out on that. We're missing out on seeing what uh, counterculture in all of these uh, alien cultures could be like. Uh, we're probably missing out on all this great Cardassian literature in the dissident movement. Exactly, right? <laughs> Underground. Yeah. The Maquis punk movement must be amazing. <laughs> um, the Klingon romantic poets. Oh. oh, yeah. They're all just writing about flowers. <laughs> and being gentle. Those are That's a major <laughs> subgroup in the Klingon world. The, people who, the touchy-feely, cuddly Klingons. They're a small group, but you know what? <laughs> They're proud and they're together, and God bless them. Kalas bless it's basically them. Teen Alexander, yes. yeah. <laughs> Their battleground is emotional connection. Oh, that was beautiful, <laughs> dude. Love is a battlefield. <gasps> oh my God, the Klingons would love Pat Benatar. <laughs> um, but going back to the idea of socio-political art in Star Trek, which. It is possibly debatably itself a form of sociopolitical art. Um, I, one example that I think is maybe the most notable and maybe best example would be, uh, author, author, where yes. the doctor writes oh, a novel, yeah. um, Photons Be Free, that inspires a movement of hologram rights. Um, but it's like, a, you know, it's a late Voyager episode. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a good example. It kind of stands out because Star Trek doesn't really get into that so much about like inequality in the Federation and inspiring art. And it also has interesting parts about copyright and like who has the right to claim authorship of their work. And um, so it, it, it really explores art and various issues related to art in a really interesting way. Well, I really like it also because it um, it briefly kind of touches on this idea of the artist not getting to fully control their interaction with the audience. Um, which isn't to say that mm -hmm. it's like you sometimes your work will be taken and interpreted in the way you don't want. But we do have this um, history of... Oh, what am I trying to say here? Media and art and the people who create it, um, A, not getting much say about how it is distributed or how it is edited, um, specifically not being allowed to edit it in this case, and also not getting to have say on the people who are putting it out and what else they are putting out into the world. So there's a sort of associative problem there. But um I was thinking about how kind of, this is a major stretch, I know, but I was thinking about um, the cre the creating of Get Out and the intention of Get Out versus some mm -hmm. of the way it was received. Like, mm -hmm. the idea of it being made by Black filmmakers to say, like, to a Black audience, check this out. Can you imagine if they were all actually doing this shit we've always felt like they were kind of doing versus... Um, seeing Kylie and Kendall Jenner tweeting about it, being like, oh my god, so scary, so unimaginable, and being like, this was about your sisters, dude. This this was about yes. something that you actively <laughs> are participating in. Also, all the non-black good liberal people being like, I watched exactly. in theaters three exactly. times. Yes. <laughs> and um, the fact that you can make it for a specific audience but um, that doesn't mean that that's going to be the audience it's distributed to. And I really appreciate how that comes across in this episode, especially when we get that final scene of after the doctor's been jumping through all these hoops and being like, 
I didn't make it for you guys. I made it for the other holograms, and I made it so that other people can get an idea of what it's like to be a hologram and be treated as different. And then we get the final scene of the holograms toiling away in the pits and being like, so have you heard of this photons be free thing? It's really provocative. Check it out. And, like, meanwhile, his friends are all just super hurt, like, instead yeah. of trying to understand Let's also him. talk about that aspect of the episode, because in it we have a character making a work that's talking about feeling subjugated and feeling othered. And then the onus is put on that character when the people around him are like, well, you saying you feel subjugated, baby, hurts my feelings. And it, uh, that's uncomfortable on so many levels, because... Who here has ever had to kind of stop and explain a microaggression to someone and then have them be like, well, you hurt my feelings by implying that I was racist or sexist in any way possible, and now I need you to make that up to me. And just the emotional labor put on the doctor. Yeah. And, like, he's really isolated without a community of his peers. Yeah. So, you know, people who have who have generated that kind of artwork in real life in society – have had usually like small groups of friends or collectives to like bolster them somewhat so that they could just be like yeah stop your concern trolling so-called friends like you you don't get what i'm doing and you're not listening yeah. to me at most the doctor connects best on the station with seven of nine and mm -hmm. then in it's that in itself is a more it's not really a peer-to-peer -peer relationship because of you know, because of the doctor's unrequited feelings and also the mentorship role that he has taken for her. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really interesting episode, both in terms of looking at, in terms of art as self-expression and art as sort of protest, and the kind of backlash that comes from that, um, which is unfortunate, but I don't think they stress that enough, just... This is a thing that happens to artists. Artists don't get to control the companies that are uh, putting their work out, the people who are distributing. It's sticky business. Yeah, even in the, the post-capitalist society yeah, where even in post Voyager exists, apparently artists get the shit end of the deal in distribution <laughs> yeah. agreements. Oh, that's bleak. <laughs> I did say earlier that I couldn't think of an example of political art within human culture on Star Trek, but when you were talking about um, artists not being able to control its audience or the editing process, it did remind me of the episode, which admittedly was set in the past, of Far Beyond the Stars in Deep Space yes. Nine, oh, where Benny yeah. Russell or Benjamin Sisko is now Benny Russell. Um, an unknown science fiction writer for a magazine where they cannot let the audience of the magazine know that he is a black man. And he creates the story of Deep Space Nine and it is immediately shut down because it is by its nature, it becomes political because the captain is a black man. And the editor is a cowardly man who feels that the audience would never accept it in 1960s America. Is it 1960s? Maybe it's 1950s. I think it's 50s, yeah. When America was was cruddier. But yeah, it's really interesting, especially when you know that um, there are actual instances specifically that are kind of referenced in that episode of, like, I'm forgetting the comic series, but it was in sort of a one-shot comic issue put out where it was an astronaut going through space and then the big twist at the end is he takes off his helmet and you see it's a black man and it was this message of it's hope and anyone can get there in the future we will have a better tomorrow and then that was edited and told no you have to either cut out the final page or change the ethnicity of the character in the final page when he takes his helmet off because that's that's rocking the boat too hard yeah especially because that comic was about the astronaut um, who was evaluating this robot species of whether to let them into uh, humanity's futuristic federation or not, and then ultimately deciding not to because the robots were subjugating an underclass. Yes. And the big twist mm. at the end was he himself was a black man, and then the editor said, no, 
the story cannot go forward in its original point unless you cut the ending, which was yeah the whole point of the comic. The whole point, yeah. Um, and I they really clearly are drawing some parallels between what was going on in the writer's room with the original Star Trek series and lots of, this is what we want to do, this is what we want to say, versus this is what you're allowed to say, this is what we're allowed to put out. And there probably could have been uh, more done with that, but what they did do with it was amazing. Um, and it does make you sort of stop and think about all of the history of Star Trek with, well, what got put on the cutting room floor? What What weren't they allowed to do? And also the importance of what did get shown to inspire people. Yes. One thing I really appreciate about uh, both DS9 and Voyager is there's really this heavy attitude of, you know, the writer, the writer is an artist. The writer is having to pull ideas out of thin air and put it together. And we see that with... Or have them pulled out of your brain by a <laughs> sex alien. vampire. Yes. Jake Sisko as a writer, we see him, We he's one of the few characters we get in Star Trek who's not a member of Starfleet and doesn't have any desire to be a member of Starfleet. He's a civilian, and as a civilian, he's chosen to be a writer. That's what he wants to do. And it's cool that we both know that that, that is an option in the future. You don't have to be a part of this militaristic organization you can just be a person you can just be an artist and also that we get to see jake as a character going through that whole process of no this is the thing i want to do and let's, let's be honest anyone who knows an artist or two has probably heard a couple yeah i told my parents i wanted to go to art school and they did not take it well stories oh yeah i mean mm -hmm. that's why i have a business degree yeah <laughs> And I think Jake Sisko gets the, maybe some of the closest that we have to that, you know, showing art as very personal. Like, I love where, I mean, as messed up as the muse is, um, the fact that he tells Sisko, he's like, I just can't go on this vacation because I am, I have to write. I just have to write. And I know it's because there's the creepy lady is there, yeah. but the point also stands on its own that, like, this you know impulse to create and that you have to like take those moments when you have that feeling yeah. jake is jake is very much a writer's idea of a writer character and i appreciate that some sexy older woman coming is like i'm just gonna sit here and watch you write because nothing writing is, is amazing <laughs> nothing is more of a pleasure to me than that and again this i this idea that if you can do art, you should do it because the ladies are going to love it. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing uh, that, you know, Prabble gives Star Trek is um, that I don't think they ever um, portray art as a way that is like, you know, too sissy for a guy. Yes. Um, cause I appreciate that, definitely. There's like this definitely kind of... Um, catch 22 with art that like on the one hand it is the art in institution of like high art and fine arts is male dominated but then on the other hand that like boys who want to to pursue arts are kind of are treated or you know shamed for not being masculine enough and star trek really like has a lot of men have creative pursuits and pursue artistic pastimes without any sense that like this is questioning their masculinity in any way yeah, Riker plays the trombone, and he's all man. Well, um, well, it's strange because in our society, as you say, art is treated as like elitist and like with gatekeeping, but it's also being treated as like totally frivolous and unnecessary to our society, which is why education is always arguing about funding it. Um, it's always the thing that gets cut K first is the arts yes. and music. But you know, within the world of Star Trek especially on the next generation, everyone has a creative endeavor, sometimes mm -hmm. several. I mean, the doctor does not identify, Dr. Crusher does not identify as an artistic person, and yet she writes and produces plays and, you know, can tap, tap dance. dances. And many of the characters can play multiple instruments. For some reason, Ensign Kim plays both, I think, the clarinet and the saxophone because at some point he just switched instruments. Um, and Data has like, I don't know, at least five hobbies. 
the thing. Dana's a hobby horse, and I appreciate <laughs> that. As someone who kind of knows how to do a lot of things, being well, a jack of all trades and master of none, except he gets to be a master of all. So that makes me I, maybe like maybe I'm you know reading or maybe I am wrong about this this train of thought, but it seems to me that that part of this kind of disconnect is linked to um the history of uh america versus europe and that Mm -hmm. like that the like elitism and institutional um sexism goes back farther um and that as with like american independence you see these um competing ideas of of manliness and like you have these early american presidential candidates who are really demonized um for being like too european and like too posh and like liking soft clothing and baths and stuff and this like you get this like rugged american masculine individualism and that maybe this like that tension is produced by that dynamic of the uh like existing way that we view art and um class through the european uh history combined with the more like working class rugged individualism new world wild west uh stuff from american pop culture and um yes media gosh it's just so amazing how much art there is to be made about art you ever just kind of stop and think about that um, I guess it's also true that um, the crew of the next generation was commonly framed as, you know, very refined individuals. So it would be natural that many of the many of the characters were um, multi-talented polyglots. There was no Vulcan love slave going for them. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I also. Uh, appreciate is sort of, you know, going back, going back to the doctor and data is um, this idea that like imagination and creativity and the ability to turn that into some form of art, even if it's, you know, terrible busts in Da Vinci's workshop is like <laughs> part of being human and yes. that it's something that is necessary for those artificial life forms to demonstrate that they're, they're equivalent to humans. Um, or sentient or, you know, valid measure of a man types. Um, and, uh, like, um, I watched The Raven, the episode mm. where um, Janeway is, like, sculpting and trying to get Seven of Nine into maybe, like, sculpting or learning a hollow, or, you know, creating a hollow program. And, and Seven is like, I don't understand why I should want to do this at all. It's super inefficient. And Janeway makes, like, a lot of kind of, you know, hobby arguments about how it's, like, good for relaxing. Um, but then also says that um, imagination and creativity and fantasy um, are an important part of one's life because imagination frees the mind and inspires ideas and solutions, and it can provide a great deal of pleasure. Um, and basically that human progress, hum- the human mind itself couldn't exist without them. So I kind of like that. I like that it, it shows like the value of art is, um, it doesn't have to be that it, you know, inspires you to invent a early helicopter um but it can also just be that it's pleasurable um it can be that it makes you see something in a new way um and it is kind of an important part of our experience and something that it's good not to close yourself off to too much and don't we see her teaching the board kids in an art class later on or am mm, i i think so yeah so i guess she learned something from that Especially because at the end of the episode, The Raven, uh, Seven of Nine admits that she was constructing hypothetical scenarios where her family did not get assimilated by the board, uh, which, you know, is a way of connecting with herself and her identity, um, which she was not able to do at the beginning of the episode when she dismissed art as, like, unnecessary and inefficient. Mm-hmm. And we do see a lot of examination as, um, like you were saying earlier, art as a sign of sentience, like with Data and uh, his painting and his fiddling and what have you. But we have lots of examples of art as also kind of a a personal need, the need of self-expression and the sort of a self-therapeutic one. The one I'm specifically thinking of is O'Brien in prison in DS9 when he starts doing the little sand mandalas. 
mm. when he's taught to do that. And then it kind of comes up as sort of a Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters sort of thing of like, oh, he's trying to make them again. But therapeutic art is specifically in prison an important thing and has proven to be something that really does help people sort of cope and not feel quite as trapped in that situation. And I always find that bit funny also because I think it's in the first episode of Orange is the New Black when the prison uh, experience is compared to making a sand mandala and that it's it's complicated, it can be beautiful, but it is impermanent. And that is a, that's a part of art that we don't reflect on enough in the media, I don't think. The fact that art is like that too, it doesn't have to be a great work to stand forever. It doesn't have to be a thing to be proud of. Sometimes just the act of creating is, if not therapeutic, then good for you in that it stretches some muscles in your brain you don't usually get to, and it can be very soothing. And I always think of, again, because um, this episode's always going to come up, the flute playing in the oh. inner light in terms of that being kind of a th- a part of uh, Picard, or 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 is he coming to terms with the situation he's in and that being part of his life and uh, being a catalyst for that and accepting the situation and it ends up being part of what he takes away from the whole experience when he continues playing the flute. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. I will. Um say one example that I think it tends towards the more uh, stereotypy and uh, you know undermines some of the previous points I raised is um, Prodigal Daughter, where mm. Esri's brother yeah. is um, like trying to get into art school and he's obviously a really gifted artist. I would say he's framed as like the more effeminate brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and Artists, they're the sensitive types, you know? Yeah, well, it's definitely, like, stereotyping. It's not shamey, yeah. necessarily, because she's he's also, like, Esri's favorite brother. But then he turns out to be a killer and definitely wow, kind wow. of reinforces this idea of, like, artists as unstable. Artistic yeah. temperament. Yeah. Artists. And this is, like, definitely a gendered stereotype because in our culture, we have a lot of male artists who have, um, you know, ended up, um, particularly I'm thinking of people who have self-harmed, um, but also people who have been killed, um, people who have taken a lot of drugs, um, and still maintained, like, a pretty exalted place in our cultural consciousness um you know back from uh you know more beyond like van gogh to like um kurt cobain um and you know you i don't i don't think that like star trek is necessarily reinforcing that with esri's brother because you don't know that like you know four centuries from now everyone's you know praising hang like trying to collect his art um but we, I would say, like, the closest woman example we have of that in Star Trek is Marta in Whom Gods Destroy, and, like, we yeah. don't actually know that she actually created any of the things herself, um, but she's a dancer, um, and uh, we also get uh, a number of women exotic dancers that are kind of pushed off to the side, or, like, I wouldn't say, like, they're, you know, people are like, these are great artists. Yeah, dance as a medium does not get its due enough, um in media, especially, um, we talked previously about uh, exotic dancers and performers in our episode we did on sex work, but dancing in general is one of those fields where it is an incredibly time-consuming activity. It requires a lot of self-discipline, and there are people who do it just because it makes them happy, and it's definitely one of those things that's treated as like a frivolous pastime in terms of you can create a great work of art and someone will always say, oh, but you're just dancing around. Yeah, or mm-hmm. it's treated like, you know, like a sexy punchline, like the yeah. exotic dancers in the Enterprise pilot who yes. are swallowing the butterflies with yeah. their tongues. It's a very specific fetish they're <laughs> working with there, and I don't totally get it. And basically yes. the whole framing is like, it's the future. It's exotic. They're yeah. sexy. Yeah, which give give the girls their credit. It's hard work, I'm sure. I assume butterfly swallowing has to be some kind of challenge. Otherwise, we'd all be doing it nonstop. 
Yeah, I mean, if they're on the Baku planet, they have to apprentice for 30 years to learn to butterfly swallow. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have to, like, live with the butterfly through its whole life cycle, and it's a whole hippy-dippy thing. It's rough! I had a point initially here, um, but if I could uh, branch off of what you were saying, Jara, also with the way we socially view artists and the artistic sort of temperament thing, and beyond, you know, being uh, self-destructive as artists, being destructive towards other people. I mean, Mm -hmm. we can all probably pull a million examples of someone who was, you know, horrible to the other people in their life or was destructive to the people around them, but it gets that written off because they were a great artist or they had a great mind or this genius complex or what have you. And And that's harmful to keep saying because it keeps happening and we keep seeing um, people uh, in positions of gatekeeping in all kinds of scenes. Uh, I'm, I'm going to use my example of being most of the musical scenes that I have seen. There's always some guy who's been like, no, you can't tame me. I'm an artist. I think on a level beyond you and therefore I have to hurt you and be a jerk to you and cheat on you and what have you. Yeah, and I don't even know that we're in a position to take on the whole art versus the artist discussion today, but I just thought of a whole whack of examples of that. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> but yeah, and I think like there are some exceptions of of women artists um that um are as much known for their um, you know, mental health issues or but um mm-hmm. like Sylvia Plath. Um yeah. but but there are also a lot of women who it's like their reputation is really destroyed by those things and the yes. art is not allowed to come through. Um, or is like really the way that they're viewed is so much, um, yeah, it's, it's just like it's really obscured by, by those pieces. The mytholo- eh, mythologizing of the figure over their actual art that they created. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I'm, well, and it's it's definitely because I've just been listening to the podcast you're wrong about, about Courtney Love, that I am thinking this. I've got opinions uh, on Courtney Love, <laughs> let me tell you. But we'll save that for another time. Please continue. <laughs> Patreon bonus content. Hell yeah. <laughs> no, that was all I was going to say, is that there's a double standard, and it's, uh, I think, worth, worth acknowledging that. There's definitely a double standard there, and... Uh, One thing, if I could bring it up, because I'd really like to, is when we're talking about Star Trek, we get a lot of just sort of the throwaway references to to real-life artists, and they are mostly white guys. And what does that say about, A, how um, art has been deemed worthy and has been deemed, like, for the ages in the past, and how are we deeming this idea of how we're going to be deeming that in the future? Um one the thing that keeps coming to mind for me is I remembered when uh, Star Trek came out in two thousand nine, a weird amount of people pitching a hissy fit over there, being like, "Why would there be rap in the future? That's going to be done with by then." And apparently, that's come up enough times um, on the pitch page for pitching articles to StarTrek.com that they're like, "Don't, don't, don't pitch me an article where you're going to be talking about how rap is unimportant and won't be in the future because that's." A classist, B racist, and I don't have time to unpack that individually for every person who brings that up. And it's true. How much of us saying no, we're not going to have rap in the future is based around the idea that it's not an endearing art form, or that it's not worthy of being recognized long term. And how much of that is based in classism and racism? Plus, it's the Beastie Boys. They're the whitest rappers out there. I know. Definitely. Um, which is actually the most questionable reason why that would exist in the future. <laughs> is that it would be the Beastie Boys. I believe there would be rap. I don't necessarily believe it would be the Beastie Boys. That said, I believe it as much as I believe that everyone knows Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> oh my but, god, the Beastie Boys are the Gilbert and Sullivan of the future. <laughs> of the JJ-verse. <laughs> but yeah, like, seriously, there are there are white people in my family who think that Rap music is a fad, and uh, oh Lord. the kids will get over all the swearing one day. They they know it's adults who are making it, right? Who are constantly no. performing and have stuff to say in, in form I of rap. I think they think that Lil is literal. Oh <laughs> they think, like, everyone is there. They're thinking back to Lil Abner, and they're like, yeah, it's all just kids making rap music. They're all named Lil. It has been commonly discussed that there's not really pop culture in 
portrayed in Star Trek, and I would love to see what 24th century rappers the kids are listening to. Not any of the characters that we follow, um, and maybe not any of their children, like Wesley Crusher, but maybe on Earth. There are some kids living within the Federation that are up on, you know, whoever the new rappers are. Well, that's the thing. It's the pop culture of today, but it's going to be like the ancient art of the future and saying that only stuff specifically from early 19th century or before is going to be counted is pretty ludicrous. So you got to at least give that some leeway in terms of, yeah, some of it's going to carry over and pretending it's not is pretty dumb. Yeah, and I mean, of course, the actual production reason is because of public domain because <laughs> yes. they don't want to uh, like in this shows especially they're they're not they don't want to pay for copyrighted movies and music and stuff. But there, whereas they usually have the budget to do that in the movies. Yeah, but like especially when you're looking at things like plays in Star Trek, um, where they're por- performing scenes from plays. Um, you can't tell me and like re- you know choosing authors to reference. You can't tell me that there weren't women. Uh, people of color, um, people from other marginalized backgrounds that you couldn't have referenced or works that were in the public domain that you could have shown from like paintings by women from the Renaissance, like they existed. And they, they clearly just didn't even think like, think that it was an issue. And they no. just went with kind of the default. And it's such an echo of the experience or the understanding of art by the people who are writing it, uh, that this is what constitutes great, famous, uh, openly recognizable work. Yeah. And they could have made, like, a lot of the times we only see, in a, see-, see a scene, right? Yeah. So they could have made a fake scene from a fake work that seems to us more recent. Guys, make the, make the effort. Make the bare effort here. I mean, like, they made Captain Proton based yeah. entirely on Buck Rogers, right? Yeah. So, like, they, they had the ability and the creativity to draw from more diverse sources and spin off of that. And, I mean, we see that also in the holodeck and all the different holo programs that we see that are almost uniformly, you know, European history um, or ideas of Western future. Um, With the exception of uh, the luau, I guess. (laughs) And there's a whole rabbit hole we can go down there. Doofa doofa. I just had a random thought. Um, I thought it's kind of a shame that maybe... In universe, Bashir has kind of extremely basic tastes, and if he was more, if he was more yes. aware of contemporary Earth authors and marginalized artists to discuss with Garrick, Garrick yeah. would find human literature much more interesting than the Shakespeare he was given. Yeah, there's a whole width and breadth of the human experience to draw literature from. I think that if they continue to have more diverse writers rooms, which I think, you know, we have to break down the stats from Picard, but I don't, I don't think Picard stepped tremendously forward in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, certainly discovery has, and, and uh, some of those writers are, are also working on section 31. I think that will help because, you know, if we had had an Indigenous writer who was a real Indigenous writer writing Chicote, oh, then some of what we saw yeah. as Indigenous art and culture would have been a lot better. Um, and, you know, today, if you had someone, um, you know, writing a character like Chicote, they could have been listening to, like, hip-hop powwow or, um, you know, like, there's all kinds of things that could be considered, um, but are not likely to unless you actually bring in different perspectives into the writer's room. Yeah, that's about that's that's the the sum of it pretty much, isn't it? What are we hoping to see in the future in depictions of art in Star Trek? I would like to see well, definitely more diversity. Not only would it make the world more realistic, but it would also bring more points of view and more contemporary and possibly controversial art because, you know, within the world there is counterculture and it would make to me it would make this world feel more lived in um especially because as i mentioned earlier a lot of the other alien races are allowed to have political art so question the federation yeah i'd really like to see um more definition of counterculture in the different alien cultures we've seen because there's always a difference between the culture as the culture represents itself and the culture as the people who actually live in it know it. And that could add a whole lot of dimension. 
Yeah, think of the Ferengi counterculture socialists and what art they are what art they would be doing. Imagine. So I think that about wraps it up for us for this episode. Um, Jara, where else can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at J A R R A H Penguin or at TrekkieFeminist.com. And Amanda, if people want to hear more from you or see more of your work, where can they find you? You can find me on social media on Twitter and Instagram. And my handle for both of those is Amanda W.T. Wong, A-M-A-N-D-A-W-T-W-O-N-G. And I'm Grace, and you can find me on Twitter at BonecrusherJank. That's B-O-N-E-C-R-U-S-H-E-R-Jank. J-E-N-K. Did it like a radio spot. Thank you so much for having Thank me you on your podcast. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> to learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. You can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Podcast.roddenberry.com.